Back when I was in seminary, my homiletics professor, that's the professor that's supposed to teach you how to preach, <clears throat> kept saying, use your lower registers. And speak with a deep voice. Well, this is about as deep as I'm going to go. I hope I can make it through uh, the sermon today. Thank you for your prayers. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to once again read this portion of Scripture that I believe is important for us to keep before us during a time of year when it's easy to become focused on all the wrong things and the substitutes there are in life instead of focusing on the only one who is worthy of worship. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Matthew chapter 2, page 1142 in your pew Bible. And here we read, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. And, when, and, when, and they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when they have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, once again, we look to you, the one who has revealed your word to us. We thank you that we have the written word of God that is absolutely reliable and trustworthy and accurate in all that it says. And we thank you that we have the living word of God, Jesus Christ, the one who has revealed the Father to us. We pray that we might again appreciate and adore and give worth and glory to Christ as we focus on what your word teaches us this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you've heard the Maxwell House coffee jingle. It says something like, good to the last drop. Exactly. Well, I'd like to suggest to you that Scripture, the Word of God, could easily be said and have its motto, inspired to the last word. 
theologians came up with a very important term in which they describe the fact that God inspired or God breathed all of Scripture. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, God is the author of all the Scripture. They came up with the term verbal inspiration, meaning it comes down not just to include the ideas that are inspired that come to us through the Scripture, but that the words themselves are inspired by God. Now, the reason I start off that way this morning is because, again, in looking at this text of Scripture in Matthew chapter 2, I want to draw to your attention once again what the text does not say. Notice that the text does not say in verse 10, they came into the house, sorry, verse 11, they came to the house and saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped them. The text does not say that. Matter of fact, in the Greek New Testament, it makes it very clear that there's a singular pronoun there. They worshipped him. And that seems to be the emphasis throughout all of this passage in Matthew chapter 2. As the Magi talking about going, they're going to go worship him. It's Herod wanting to go worship him. And so clearly the scripture is making very much an emphasis that there is no desire on the part of these Magi to worship Jesus and his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him, singular, the infant Jesus alone. Now, why is that observation so significant or important? Well, it's because the scriptures teach that the focus of any worship should be on God and God alone. He is the only one worthy to be worshipped. Matter of fact, if you were to skip over to John's last writings, the last book that the Apostle John wrote in Revelation, chapter uh, 22, we read in verses 8 and 9 that when John heard and saw this message that was given to him by an angel, he fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, this is the angel now speaking back to John, because he is just down on his knees, he's down with his face low, And the angel says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and those who heed the words of this book. And then the angel goes on to say this, worship God. And so it seems to me that that's one of the things that we need to draw from this text of Scripture is to realize it's all about Jesus. His coming is all about Jesus. Jesus, and he alone was the object of the Magi's worship and devotion. And yet, sadly, down through the centuries, we have seen with even interest today, even more so perhaps today in our world, that there are so many people who are involved knowingly and perhaps unknowingly in Mariolatry, a term that is oftentimes used to describe the worship or the adoration of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, Roman Catholics would be uh, very uh, quick to say, now, they never would affirm that. They would distinguish between one's devotion to God. They have a word with which they, a Latin term they use, which is latria, and that's what they mean to have devotion to God. Then there's veneration offered to saints, that dulia, 
And then thirdly, they have special veneration that's given to Mary, which is hyperdulia. Now they make these distinctions because, again, in, 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 according to the uh, theologians in the Roman Catholic Church, they would say, well, there's no such thing as Mariolatry. They're not really worshiping Mary. However, I would say that there's ample evidence that if you just listen and read what has been said, if you look at the practices of so many devoted uh, Catholics, you'll notice that the position that Mary has in their uh, own view is a position akin to, if not equal to, that of Jesus Christ. And my purpose in examining this issue this morning, please hear me out, is not to do Catholic bashing. That's not what I'm here to say at all. My heart is filled with love and compassion for all of those who have the background of Catholicism and who uh, are adhering to those particular tenets. I'm not here as a person who hates anyone following these things. I'm here to primarily point us away from giving veneration to people who don't deserve it, and giving the true worship and true adoration to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And so we look at the Scriptures and we say to ourselves, what is the biblical balance in the proper assessment of Mary as taught in the Scriptures? Because obviously this is a very important issue that has battled between people who have been very religious over many, many years. So I'd like to look at the two extremes that people tend to follow uh, one or the other off to very unhealthy extremes. The first is this. Many people have a high veneration of Mary, and it's an unbiblical elevation. They lift up Mary far too high. One way to gauge the elevated status of Mary in the minds of many, many people in today's world is to consider the various Marian dogmas, they call it. And this has to do with, of course, many of the teachings over the years that have built up around Mary that are found primarily in tradition, not in Scripture. They'll be very honest and say, this is nothing we can find in Scripture to defend all of these positions, but these are things we believe the church teaches. So the first is Mary's Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception was declared in 1854, and that claims that Mary, at her own birth, was miraculously preserved from any stain of original sin. So that Mary, in her birth, at the moment she was conceived, in the moment that she was born, she comes into the world in soul and in body, completely and permanently sinless, undefiled, and innocent. Now, this dogma clearly had to lead to another particular dogma, which we'll look at in just a second, but another of the dogmas that are taught about Mary, <clears throat> again, trying to lift her to a position that's probably much higher than she should have, is the doctrine of perpetual virginity. This was again established in 6, uh, AD 649, and in this Catholic teaching, they insist that Mary remained and remains to this day a virgin during the time of Jesus' birth, after Jesus' birth, and uh, that she has never into, entered into any marital relations with Joseph. That was never something she did. She never bore any other children after giving birth to Jesus. Jesus. 
Now, there are many, uh, of course, uh, problems with that particular view. If you look at Mark chapter 6, just take your Bible for a second. Let's look at Mark 6. You'll notice there in verse 3, we read that those who heard Jesus teach in his hometown, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, those who heard Jesus teach in his hometown of Nazareth asked, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James? And Joseph and Judas and Simeon are not his sisters here with us? Now you're saying, well, that seems pretty clear. It seems absolutely clear, but unfortunately Catholic scholars would say that those words there about the people listed there were Jesus' cousins. And that's just a mistranslation. But the fact is, no, that's not true because there's a whole separate word for cousin There's a word for brother and there's a word for sister. The masculine and the feminine are both used in this this particular verse. It's his brother and sisters. Also, if you compare Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 25, it's assumed that Mary and Joseph did indeed consummate their marriage and enjoyed marital relations after Jesus' birth. Well, more could be said about that, but let's look at the third dogma, which again, unfortunately, elevates Mary too high, and that is the assumption of Mary. And this was declared by Pius, Pope Pius XII, in 1950. This is a rather recent um, dogma, which was affirmed by the church. And it teaches that Mary was assumed up into heaven before death that she never really died here on earth, and she ascended body and soul to heaven. Well, of course, they had to come up with that, because if she never sinned, then she wouldn't die. So that was part of something they had to rectify and somehow come up with the fact that they would never want to see her in a grave somewhere if she was supposedly sinless. And much more is made now of where her role is. They would say that she is the queen of heaven. She's called the mother of God. And clearly, uh, there are uh, m- much teaching about her current role in heaven. We won't get into too much more of that this second here. But another particular thing that is taught very widely and practiced is the fact that here in this life, Mary, there are these apparitions of Mary. That is, there are these times in which she appears to people down through the ages. And uh, various times she has, supposedly she has appeared to, uh, you know, some poor teenagers over here and someone here claims to have had these uh, appearances from Mary. They build these shrines in those particular areas. Uh, There are thousands and thousands of pilgrims who go to these every year and they think there's something sacred or something special about this place, whether it's in the Lourdes, France or in the uh, grotto there in uh, Fatima, Portugal, or wherever it is, they, all over the world. And uh, what's rather odd, it seems to me, is where is Jesus? He never seems to appear, but it's Mary. Mary is the one who seems they have claimed, and it, and it comes in greater, greater number in the last century. In the 1800s, it was only, you know, maybe 20 times, and And then it was about 200 times in the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, it's like 450 times people claimed that they had visions 
of Mary. As a matter of fact, in the Sunday New York Times Magazine a number of years ago, I um, cut out this little article that said that there are reported apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Um, in, the, in that year alone, 1998, the faithful have seen Mary on a California tree trunk and in a water stain in a Mexico City subway station. And in 1996, after Mary appeared on one side of a highway office building in Clearwater, Florida, Hawker sold Miracle on US 19 t-shirts. In other words, they're looking for these appearances of Mary. Well, one other doctrine, again, that is quite troubling is that they speak of Mary oftentimes in elevated terms as Mary the Mediatrix. Mary the Mediatrix. And Catholics are encouraged in their devotion to God to also pray to Mary. As a matter of fact, when you pray the rosary, 153 of the 170 prayers are offered to Mary. Now, in light of that, you have to listen to what is being said about Mary by those who are in the church or by the catechism or by the popes themselves. We read in the catechism, it says, By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners. We address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. We give ourselves over to her now, and we surrender the hour of our death completely to her care. Another troubling statement by Pope Leo XIII said in 1891, I think this is in your notes, nobody can approach Christ except through the mother. They give to Mary a position of honor and responsibility that even exceeds Christ. Pope Pius X, 1903 to 1914, said, Mary is the dispenser of all gifts which Jesus has acquired for us by his death and his blood. You don't get anything unless it comes through Mary. And then lastly, Pope Pius IX wrote, The foundation of all our confidence is found in the Virgin Mary. God has committed to her the treasury of all good things in order that everyone may know that through her, are obtained every hope, every grace, and all salvation. For this is his will, that we obtain everything through Mary. Sweetheart of Mary, be my salvation. And all I say to those statements and to all I've said previously regarding all of this uh, Marian dogma is to say, what do the scriptures say? What does the scripture teach regarding Mary? Well, it's impossible to find any support for all of the things that we've just run through here. I would challenge anybody to find me in the scriptures a justification for any of those positions that this taught and held. Because praying to Mary as a heavenly, all-powerful intercessor who hears the prayers of millions of people who pray to her attributes, it seems to me, to her the attributes and characteristics of God. 
that she is omniscient and that she is omnipresent. But these alone, these kinds of character traits are only belong to God. In the minds of so many other sincere Catholics, Mary is put on the same level as a member of the triune Godhead. It is the scriptures who never ever call Mary the Redeemer. She stood there at the foot of the cross. She saw the Lamb of God sent by God who died and laid down his life on that cross. She was there to witness. It was the precious blood of Christ, First Peter says, that redeemed us, not Mary. The scriptures say that with absolute clarity, there is only, this is a very important verse, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. You should know that verse off the top of your head. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, there is only one mediator between God and humans. It is Jesus Christ. Not his mother Mary. And while the Bible affirms that Jesus was without sin, numerous times the Bible teaches that. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Every other person, that includes all of us, myself, all of us here today, and everyone else who's ever lived, everyone else falls short of the glory of God and has broken God's laws and has sinned. Romans 3.23 and one of the most significant comments made by Mary, and I think it's so important to go back and say, what does the Scripture say and what did Mary say? So that we have her own witness, her own statements. And I'd like to encourage you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, include the response that Mary made when the angel revealed to her this wonderful plan that she was going to have a child and explain it all to her. So she responds to that. And look what she says in verse 46. Both she and her cousin are expecting these sort of miraculous babies. Mary said in verse 46, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced, watch, in God, my Savior. Mary is speaking of God as her Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Mary viewed herself not as a sinless, perfect person, but she admitted she had need of a Savior. Only sinners need saviors. Obviously, she was uniquely blessed by God. The text of Scripture says that explicitly. We, we affirm that. That's true. But the blessing mostly had to do with being God's agent through whom he brought the Son of God into our world. So Mary viewed God as her Savior. And it's interesting enough also that when she and her husband Joseph were told about this son of theirs, they were told what to name the son. He wasn't to be called Joseph, son of Joseph, you know, bar Joseph, that's what that would have meant. No, he was to be called Jesus. Why? For he would save his people from their sins. 
And the joy that she expressed in her heart was rooted in the fact that God himself was providing an all-sufficient Savior for sinners like her and like all of us. No wonder she rejoiced. She was rejoicing in God. God who has provided for her and for all sinners the hope of a Savior in Christ the Lord. And that's why it's important that we never switch the pronoun of that verse we started with in Matthew 2.11. The Magi worshipped not them, not the baby and his mother Mary, but, the, but they worshipped only Christ. And the reason we say that is because our only authority is what the Scriptures say. It's not tradition. It's not custom. It's not the consensus of earnest, pious people or people who claim to have had some kind of vision or some kind of word from God. It is, what do the Scriptures say? And 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, I encourage you to meditate on that sometime during this next week, is to think through what Paul is affirming here in this text when he's meditating on the gospel. He once again says, our confidence, our assurance is found in what the Word of God says about Christ and who He is to us. Because it says the Scriptures teach us that Jesus, not His mother Mary, but Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our redemption. And that's why Paul says, and all boasting needs to be about Christ. And Christ alone. To do anything less is to rob Christ of his exclusive glory and honor and praise. When you read Revelation, where is the focus of all the worship? To whom is the object of all that worship? It's Christ on the, seated on the throne. It's the Lamb who's receiving all glory and praise. When you go to Romans chapter 8, and Paul is concluding the fact that, yes, we struggle against sin in chapter 7, and there's such an ongoing battle within our hearts. We struggle against the flesh, and where are we going to find help? Well, the help comes through the Holy Spirit enabling us to live a new life. And then he goes on to say, well, who's going to condemn us? Who's going to bring charges against us? How are we going to deal with this in the Christian life? We're going to struggle. We have all kinds of difficulties, how weak we are. And he goes on, his confidence is in Christ. He says, if God has not withheld his own son from us, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? It is Christ who has died. It is Christ who has raised. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is Christ. That is our hope. It is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who makes us into new people from the inside out. One particular author I was reading this week reminded me what I think needs to be said and, needs, and oftentimes is not very clearly said, and that's the sad thing is that Mary would be aghast. Mary would be filled with grief and a horror if, if what was being talked about her and what was being practiced regarding her was something she knew about. Matter of fact, Mary has never heard a prayer from anyone. She can never come back to this world. She's never appeared to anyone. 
and she's never spoken and never seen anything, but she is cast in wonder. She is filled with love. She was filled with praise for the one who's seated on the throne in glory in heaven. I urge us, let's make Christ the one we adore. Christ is the one we meditate on. Christ is the one we seek when we need help. It is he that ever lives to make intercession for you. Not Mary. Second point to balance out a tendency to go to one extreme or the other with regard to the position and importance of Mary is that sometimes there's another reaction is to have a denigration or a denying the importance of Mary, and I would call this an unbiblical demotion. That is to leave her at a lower level than she properly deserves. Oftentimes the people that struggle with this are evangelical Christians. We're reacting to those who worship Mary or to make Mary an object of veneration. Many people are, have a tendency to undervalue what Mary said, what Mary accomplished in her life, and the way in which she showed her godly devotion to Christ. Obviously, one of the things that is admirable about Mary was the characteristic so clearly evidenced in her life, and that was humble service. Humble service. Mary, in responding to the angel in Luke 1, she describes herself as, I am a handmaid of God. I'm a person who is here to serve. So she submits herself to God's will. But all the while she's submitting, she knows that when she says yes to what she's being asked to be involved in, that is to bear this child having never known a man, she knows full well, I am going to endure a vast, undeniable scandal that's going to ruin my reputation, ruin my family's reputation, ruin my fiancé's reputation, the one to whom she was betrothed. And yet she still said, I'm willing. I will submit to it. I will do what you've asked me to do. I'm your servant. She knew she'd be exposed to painful criticism. Obviously, I think for in many ways, she probably was rejected by many people in her family or town, perhaps, to ridicule. But she made no demands of her own. She completely, humbly surrendered herself. Now, we get the, get the sense that this submissive spirit continued throughout her life. If you think about the different brief vignettes, the brief, brief comments in which we read about Mary, one of them is found in the first public miracle that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. Would you take your Bible and find John chapter 2, just for a second. John 2. Here we have a, an occasion of a wedding. It's a joyous time. It's a time in which there is just ongoing celebration. <clears throat> and part of that celebration is that there's lots of eating and lots of feasting and lots of uh, wine that is available to enjoy in all this time of celebration. And uh, in a very awkward, in one of these socially uh, strange situations, they ran out of wine. And so that becomes a problem. And so notice that the text here says, 
Jesus, she turns, uh, G- uh, Mary turns to her own son, Jesus. He's grown now, grown man. And uh, she makes this known to him. And notice how he addresses her in chapter 2, verse 4. Woman. Woman. He says, woman. Uh, and, and also we know that the, not only does he not call her mother of God, of course. He doesn't call her that at all. He says there in uh, John 4, sorry, I had to get from me here, John 2, verse 4. What do I have to do with you? My hour has not come, yet come. And his mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. It's interesting that this seems to me to be one of the mottos of her life. Whatever he says to you to do, do it. In other words, submit to his authority. This one has authority. Here is a grown woman yielding to the authority of her son, Jesus Christ. Now, she was not sinless, but she was, I believe, overall showed a character in which she was submissive to the commands of Christ. She knew that Christ was endued with absolute authority, not only over nature, but over all people. Now, I've been thinking about that in my life, and I wonder if you think about that in your life. Is that an attitude that characterizes your life? To say, whatever you say to me, whatever you ask me to do, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to do it. Anything. That means I need to Perhaps pursue something I'd rather not pursue, I'm willing to do it. Or I need to give up something I'd rather not give up, I'm willing to do it. How many of us are willing to lay aside our own personal agenda and willingly obey our Lord and His commands? That was Mary's attitude and outlook, one that ought to make all of us stop and think for a moment about how we have a tendency to say, well, I think my plan is best. I'd rather do what makes sense to me. And there's one last passage I wanted to focus on that illustrates the proper view of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is found in Luke chapter 11. This is interesting. This is Jesus now describing a a, a very interesting concept regarding the view he has of his own biological family and the view he has of his own followers during this particular incident in luke chapter 11 verse 27 this woman who apparently was so caught up with impressed with jesus and thinking about having him as a member of the family so she comes up and she says to jesus so impressed with his teachings she says how truly blessed jesus's mother must be But you'll notice his response that Jesus made in Luke 11, 27, 28. On the contrary, Jesus says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That will make you scratch your head. Now, it's true that Mary was blessed, and we said that earlier. Mary is blessed to be the one who gave birth to Messiah, no question. But Jesus here is widening the realm of, of blessing to include anyone who obeys the Word of God. 
And if you read Mark chapter 3, 31 and 35, it says that when Jesus was informed that his mother Mary and his brothers were outside looking for him, he looked at those who were sitting around in the place where he was at that moment. He says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. It's as if Jesus is saying, you are part of my family if you're the one who is following me and yielding to my word. Now, obviously, Jesus cherished his relationship with his mother. We know that because when he's on the cross and he's just gasping for her breath, he's in tremendous pain, he's particularly concerned about the care for his own mother, tells John to be sure to take care of her. But it's also clear that Jesus cherishes the relationship he has with his followers. Do you see that? Do you say, well, I'm a, I'm a nobody. I'm a failure. I'm a person that doesn't get any notoriety. My life is just ordinary. I don't seem to make any kind of big impact on the world. But you look at how Jesus takes the, the nobodies of the world. He elevates them up and says, oh, but you're one of my family. He says, you're as if you're my own mother, my sisters, or my brother. That's how much I love and care for you if you're one of my own. I can assure you that in eternity, Mary will not be cherished for her mother-son relationship to Jesus Christ. Mary will be viewed in eternity through the lens of the dynamic of the relationship between her and her Savior, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now I wonder, are you treasuring Christ these days? Or are you looking for someone that you truly can rely on? Someone that you can know for sure that they will cleanse your sins. Someone you know for sure will hear you when you pray. Someone you know for sure who will come back and rescue you and be with you forever and have you take, him, take you with him to be with him forever in heaven. Who is the one that's going to do that? Who's the one that's going to offend you on judgment day? Who's the one that's going to be enabling you on, to be strong when you're tempted? Who has not been sinned in any way? Who's not sinned in any way? It's only Christ. It's only Christ. Are you relying on Christ to be your all-sufficient Savior, your all-sufficient high priest, your all-sufficient shepherd and king and prophet? My friend, don't share his glory and honor with anyone else. Not even the woman who gave him birth and raised him. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we are deeply humbled when we think of the, the statement that Mary made, whatever Jesus says to you to do, just do it. Lord, we know, if we're honest, that none of us do that. We are not a people who submit to the will of our Savior. We are rather stubborn, defiant people who love to have our own autonomy, and so we come recognizing that we need a Savior. Just like Mary needs a Savior, Lord, we need a Savior. Thank you that your love for us is such that you gave your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, 
We thank you that he was born of a woman, born under the law, but he came at just the right time, fulfilling all those prophecies as the Savior of the world. Lord, we pray for anyone here today who perhaps has been taught many things over the years, has been taught to have devotion to someone other than Christ. I pray that this would be the day, Lord, we would turn away from all false worship, all inappropriate expressions of veneration to anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to find true joy in Christ. Help us to realize that we truly can be confident in Christ. We can stand our ground and know that he is a firm foundation and that no matter what we face in the future, if our trust is in Christ, we are secure no matter what. So, Father, we pray that you might impress upon us and impress upon our hearts a greater desire to honor, to glorify, and to adore Jesus Christ and Him alone. May we find Him to be an ever source of joy in our hearts during today and throughout the season, even until He comes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.